Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, listeners. Kevin and I need your help. Yes, we need your help. Please, please, please. We need your stars. We need your reviews, you guys, on iTunes so we can start to climb those iTunes rating charts. It's simple. Open iTunes, click on the iTunes store, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Then click on Ratings and Reviews under the Customer Reviews Click write a review, then let us know what you think from one to five stars. If you need some help, think of one star being Carol Channing and Paul Lynn in the road company of the last five years, <laughs> and five stars being free front row tickets to Hamilton. <laughs> Although, when you think about it, I actually would give five stars to the road company of Carol Channing and Paul Lynn in the last five years, because I think that would be uh, awesome. I would love to hear, can I hear moving too fast as Paul? <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the one I really want. She's a shakes the goddess. <laughs> And through Erica Schwartz and Danica Weiss and the Handelman twins. So there you go. You can also leave a comment if you like. That's it. That's their reviews. It. Send us Thank your you. reviews, friends. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back to part two of our interview with the wonderful Richard Maltby Jr. Just so you're aware, we had a few sound issues with this particular recording, but we've tried to work them out to the best of our ability. Thanks so much, and enjoy part two of Richard Maltby Jr. Since I don't think we asked you originally on our first day that I'd love to get an answer to is exactly how did the collaboration between you and Mr. Shire come about? Oh, well, we met in freshman year at Yale. I had gone to a prep school where I'd written a musical in my senior year, and I went to Yale as opposed to Harvard because uh, Yale had a theater and Harvard didn't at the uh -huh. time. And uh, David came from Buffalo, where he had gone to a prep school, and he, he came with a, um, a complete score to a musical. Ballads, comedy songs, up-tempo, the Beguine, yeah. those days are the Beguine. Um, he, he didn't have a book, a story, or characters, or lyrics, but he had the score for the musical, and he oh thought gosh. that people would just take it and just make a musical out of it. Why not? So I thought he was this asshole hick from Buffalo, <laughs> and he thought I was this pretentious twit from Exeter, and... Uh, we were both right. So, um, Still friends today. Well, we weren't at first. We, you know, neither of us really wanted to work with the other. But there was no other alternative. There was yeah. You who know, else is going to write? Else, yeah. The, you know, we looked around and basically David was the only one who write, wanted to write music, and I was the only one who wanted to write a musical. So uh, whether we liked it or not, we got together and. Every now and then I think, wasn't I lucky to get a world-class composer out of that? I mean... I could have gotten anybody. I could have gotten, you know, any number of... Um, there were, in, in subsequent years, some people who came to write musicals who were not nearly as good as, you know, in terms of composing as right. he was. Um, he really set the bar, too. I mean... He oh, would, he did. He yeah. was... He... Once he found his voice, which took a little bit of doing, uh, it, he started to explode. Um, I mean, he, we used to, when we first came to New York, we would always meet with Sondheim and we would play our songs and he'd play his songs. Oh, it was like you. Show and tell with Sondheim. It was show and tell. It was, well, he hadn't produced um, um, Forum or any of the Pal Prince shows or right. um, uh, even uh, even uh, Do I Hear Waltz. Uh, and he was, uh, he'd 
done those the two biggies and uh, was complaining because nobody in the world wanted him as a composer. They wanted to write lyrics all you know. So we got together and he would you know complain and everything. I know for a fact because I because I confirmed with Jonathan Tunick that Sondheim got a lot of chords from David. <laughs> I, I believe that. And uh, so he'll, he'll, he, he, he admits it. I mean, he, yeah, he, he accepts it and, and uh, writes, you know, lovely notes every now and then. Uh, when did you decide? He also did many more things for us. He also got us an agent. He got us a, uh, uh, a publisher. Uh, he, uh, he was a very, really great, uh, you know, help. And, and did you and just look him up when you came to New York? I mean, obviously you knew Steve Sondheim was someone that... But no, because this was, would have been like the he, little... He was just the lyricist of yeah. Gypsy and West Side Story. Right? Yeah. That was not exactly chopped liver. But right. No, David, uh, David and I uh, wrote two shows at Yale. And then when we graduated, we wrote another show that was uh, going to be done at... Uh, it was called The Sap of, Sap of Life. Life. Yeah, and it was uh, done at Sher- one Sheridan Square. We tried it out at Williamstown. Mm-hmm. And um, it uh, it was our you know rip off of the Fantastics. I mean, you know, there'd never been a little musical before, and so we thought, oh well, we can do that. And um, and it had a, a rather mindless story, but it had a bunch of very interesting songs. And it ran six weeks. Um, the but somewhere in the first or second week, Steve came, and then he came back and brought Hal Prince, and then he came back and brought Jerry Robbins. Wow. <laughs> and, and Leonard Bernstein. And uh, so that's how we met him. <laughs> that's incredible. Such generosity. Really. You know, in, in, in those days, um, there wasn't a direct route. There wasn't a route of any sort for new writers, uh, you know, to, to get into the mainstream. And so people like Hal, who uh, and and who were adventurous, uh, um, were thrilled when some new voice came along, and uh, so they were uh, incredibly, uh, you know, supportive. And, were there any uh, lyricists or composers that you were looking at the time, beside Mr. Sondheim, that you thought were, their work was just incredible and you were admiring their craftsmanship? Well, my, my personal idol was Sheldon Harnick. Mm. Um, when I was at Yale, Fiorello came through. Um, I think I saw the, the Body Beautiful. He did, yes. Oh, yeah. I, I saw that, but... Uh, but it was the Fiorello came through, which had really, really deft lyrics, and then uh, <clears throat> shortly after, well, not shortly after that, uh, uh, she loves me. Open and she loves me. Uh, David went to see it before I did, which is unusual, and uh, and he said, "There's this show," <laughs> and it's really interesting. And so I went off to see it. I mean, the lyrics in that are just flawless, and, uh, and they all seem. Exactly like human speech, except their song. And, uh, you know, that's always been my model. I don't know where I got that from, but I just it just bothered me, you know, and it wasn't human speech. And so uh, I would just work very hard until it became. If you took away the music, you'd still say the same thing. You know? Can we talk a little bit about Love Match or how do you do <laughs> I Love You? Sure. I mean, uh, we uh, we actually, our first. 
years in New York were uh, checkered. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, we got no. Streisand and she recorded five of our songs, so that right. was that's good. That's we did yeah. we did a review called Graham Crackers at, at, uh, with Ronnie Graham at the upstairs at the downstairs. Oh. I, um, I hate to interrupt for our listeners. The name Ronnie Graham comes up a lot. Would you explain a little bit about who he was and why he was so influential? Well, Ronnie Graham was a a a, a, a comedian, a, a a really inventive madcap comedian, and he was the central comic in New Faces of nineteen fifty two. Mm-hmm. Um, which was maybe the only really, really successful new phases that you know that was done. It's uh, it's still kind of a model for everybody, um, and um, so he did television shows and other things like that. And and uh, um, <laughs> we uh, um, and then he did this. He was going to do this show at the at. at the upstairs and the downstairs, which we decided ought to be called Graham Crackers. Nice, <laughs> you know. huge. Um, I love it. Um, but he was a he was a uh, a person who went to doctor the doctor feel good of the time, the one that Alan yeah. Jamarner was. I don't yeah, who had the, the vitamins the, the, that he would the, prescribe? Uh, yeah, the <laughs> vitamins with some other secret exactly. ingredient, which yeah. was you know some kind of uh, some kind of upper. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, they they were all. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about Love Match? Sure. I mean, uh, we uh, we actually our first years in New York were uh, you know checkered. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we got you know, Streisand, and she recorded five of our songs, so that right. was that's that was good. huge. We did, yeah, we did a review called Graham Crackers with at, uh, with Ronnie Graham at the upstairs at the downstairs. Oh, yeah. a, 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 a comedian. Uh, uh, a really inventive madcap comedian, and he was the central comic in New Faces of 1952, mm. um, which was maybe the only really, really successful New Faces that you know that was done. It's uh, it's still kind of a model. So he did television shows and other things like that, and and uh, we decided it ought to be called Graham Crackers. Nice, <laughs> you know. cute. Um, I love it. Um, but for secret exactly, which yeah, was you know some kind of uh, some kind of upper. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, they they were <laughs> they were, uh, and he would he would spout these that in the show, and he'd say, "But what in the show?" <laughs> it's, he never remembered what he had just done, <laughs> and um, uh, you know, and he he didn't have any kind of sense of focus. It was all you know. He was theoretically directing the show. And, uh, Ooh. One, one time, I, I, David and I were just close to the opening. And we, we we had went off after a rehearsal and we'd sort of had enough. Ronnie had to come in and sort of take charge. So we were we had a little dinner and then we went back to the club to tell him that we were going to that, that he had to take charge. So um, he was there with just the, th- the three of us and and uh, uh, he said, you know, talk. And so I started to do my really large and impassioned speech. And as I was doing it, he took out this little zipper bag and he opened it up and took out this, <laughs> rolled up his sleeve, took out this plastic tube, put it around his arm, filled a syringe with something out of a bottle. Now, somewhere along here, I completely lost my train of thought. I was no longer able to focus as he, you know, oh, I can't find a vein. It's not a hard oh to find, God. you know. 
keep talking, he would say. Keep talking. And I'm going, I, I by now had totally forgotten anything I was planning to say. Um, he said, it's just vitamins. It's just vitamins. It was not just vitamins. <laughs> that is the legendary Ronnie Graham. That is the red for, legendary Ronnie Graham. No, for was, our listeners. He was... He, he was uh, well, like so many of those madcap comics, uh, you know, the real world was not a place for them. Jonathan Winters and, and right. you know, he was like that, you yeah. know. Um, Robin Williams, in a way, mm-hmm. uh, who at least could control himself doing, a, you know, doing a part. But um, he was one of those off-the-wall zanies um, who was hysterically funny. And uh, real life was always a problem. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that gives us a little glimpse into who Ronnie Graham yeah. was. My gosh. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so now that, let's go back to Love Match or How Do You Do I Love You? I'm so sorry because I, I, I cut you off when you were mentioning Mr. Graham's name. Uh, how do you do I love you? We we had we were working on a show of, of our own uh, that uh, would, would have been rather interesting because the main character would not have would have been mute all, all through the show. And uh, it was really a satire on the modern world and... and she never had a chance. She never spoke. Um, wow. So, um, and uh, for some reason, Julie Stein picked it up, and he was going to produce it. Um, but we needed to expand the uh, the story. Um, one of the people we went to was Michael Stewart, mm. Mm. who didn't really like our show. Uh, no, no professional would have because. You know, had this sort of problem, right? This main character who didn't say. Doesn't, uh, actually, it would have been a great show. It would have been a, <laughs> would have, I mean, she would have been a dancer. She would have, you know, would have been a really interesting part. But anyway, he he said no. But why don't why don't, would he had another idea for a show about a, a woman who finds a man uh, through uh, well, what we would call today computer dating, but mm-hmm. in those days. It was that she got a job in an insurance company and used the computers of the insurance company to zero in on the the the, the perfect uh, the perfect guy for her. How cute and how clever and ahead of its time. Well, uh, I don't know. It seems like it was ahead of its time, but uh, it was a real cornball <laughs> musical and. Uh, but we, you know, nobody was asking us to do anything else, so we uh-huh. said yes. And we and we did it. It starred Phyllis Newman. It, it played oh. the music tents, you know the um, Lee uh, Lee Goober was the producer of it. He was at that time married to Barbara Walters, who kept walking in on our meetings. Oh my goodness! Um, you know it was it was uh, it was a nice experience. We we hired um, Jonathan Tunick to be the orchestrator mm. and. Uh, it was like his first show or one of his very yeah. first shows. Um, um, and uh, <laughs> it gave us our great our, our great uh, experience. We, we opened in some place in Maryland, and, uh, and we knew that there was one review coming out in the weekly paper. <laughs> we didn't know. I mean, it was a real small town. Yeah. And uh, it finally came out, I think, on a Friday, so we went off to the drugstore to buy the newspaper, and we opened it up. We were looking through it, and we couldn't find and And it was a show called How Do You Do? I Love You. The uh, headline read, Goodbye, I Hate You. Oh! <laughs> and proceeded to pan everything in the show. Uh, it was, uh, 
I, I mean, I always think this is kind of marvelous because that was our first professional review. And truthfully, if you get that as your first review, they can never hurt you again. Nowhere to go but up. No, yeah. You know? Can well, never, yeah. So, uh, what a good attitude. Yeah, right? <laughs> develop a thick skin early on. Uh, it's not you never develop a, a thick skin, but you, but you realize that there's nothing, you know, nothing worse right. that they can say about That's you. That's true. You know? uh, one of the other things we didn't talk about last week that we should talk about because we've had two-thirds of the cast... On our show oh, uh, uh, is starting yeah. here, starting now. Yeah, we've we've interviewed Lonnie and we've and interviewed George, George. Uh, and and not Marjorie, not yet, not yet. Yeah. Not yet. She's around. Yeah. We'll get the, the triumph, triple crown, yes. <laughs> triple crown. There. Uh, where did the desire come from to create this show? Well, it came from um, uh, um, from Lynn Meadow, actually. Uh, uh, I suppose we could. We sort of skipped over uh, Love Match, which was... Oh, I'm so sorry. We can go well, back. Just yes. for chronology, uh, yes. the, uh, the the one thing about How Do I Love You was that it was the first time we, de- we decided we would use um, rock and roll as the, as the natural vocabulary of the younger characters, which had never happened before. There were, um, uh, you know... Shows were beginning to have the rock number or the pop number, right. you know, but they were always sort of like set pieces stuck mm-hmm. into a show about yeah. something else. And we thought we could actually make the make, make it the vocabulary their of voice. the main characters. Yeah. So, um, which had never been done before. Um, uh, as a result, um, David Merrick and Bert Backrack came out to see the show and. Uh, Hired Jonathan and hired a musical director um, because you know that for promises promises because that was the the breakthrough that they were you know working oh. towards, um, um, and we to our great dismay, having broken ground in a kind of a modern kind of sound, got offered um, a uh, musical about Queen Victoria and Albert. That's what love matches. We were brought in to to sort of doctor it. You know, can you write this song? And we did. And then, well, why don't you write that song too? And slowly, we ended up at replacing the entire score and and everything. Um, wow. It starred Patricia Routledge and Larry Guitar. Oh wow! And Hal Linden played in uh, the Amundsen, and at that time they were thinking that the West Coast would. Would become a uh, a tryout place, mm-hmm. so they needed a they needed a, a New Haven to go to. So they decided they were going to make Phoenix, Arizona, into their out of town tryout <laughs> town. And so they renovated some big movie theater. Wow! Uh, what they didn't what they didn't allow for is that um, theaters have staffs. Of people who do this all the time, right? So we were there opening a, a really big musical um, with stage hands who didn't know, you know, stage right from stage left, and in uh, our texts were uh, our, our first preview. We had actually an audience, and we were, had told them that we might stop from now, you know, from time to time. 
We stopped, I think, about 10 minutes into the first act, and then again, and then again. Oh. And about midnight, we had barely reached the end of the first act. Oh, my goodness. And um, people started leaving <laughs> because it was midnight. Um, and uh, it was, I think... It was one of the first shows that Robin Wagner designed. It was one of the first shows that Jules Fisher designed. Oh. Um, so we had some interesting people, um, and um, and it was it was pretty, and it had some of the score was really really wonderful. It was directed by um, Danny Daniels, who did three brilliant dances, uh, but he wasn't really a director, right? And the sort of supervisor of the show was a guy named Noel Willman, who had directed A Man for All Seasons. Yeah. And uh, even though at one time Paul Schofield was famous for saying Noel Willman had nothing to do with the (laughs) (laughs) success of A Man for All Seasons, I guess he was lucky. He he didn't really know anything about a musical, and he he, kept saying things like, well, get on with it, dear boy. Um, the uh, <laughs> the show opened in uh, I guess we must have played in Phoenix mm-hmm. I, I, I don't even remember that but we opened at the Amundsen and uh, did not get very good reviews although I must say a couple of the couple of them were smart enough to single out the score which was very nice <laughs> yes um, it had a uh, book by a guy named Christian Hamill who had never written a musical before and um, we had. After we opened in, in uh, at the Amundsen, and there was this big production meeting about how what we were going to do because we were on a we were scheduled to go to the Fisher in Philadelphia in uh, Detroit, Detroit and come into New York. It was all a, a trajectory, um, and there was work that had to be done, and sort of everybody agreed that we we're going to do this and this and this. It was a lot, and uh, as we were leaving the room, I was walking down the hall with Christian and David and. Uh, I said, Chris, well, how? Um, what, 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 what are we going to do? How, how are we going to do this? What, what are you going to do? And he said, uh, nothing. And I said, what? I said, no, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to change anything. He said, but, but you, you, you have to. We're, you, know, right. you, you have to. And he said, no, I don't. I have a rich wife. There's, that's one way. I mean, there was a, a total conversation stopper. You can't, you know. No. What, what, <laughs> how do you trump that? How do you trump that? You yeah. just, you know, okay, you don't care whether the show succeeds or not because you have a rich wife. My God wow. almighty. Wow. Okay. That's my favorite theater anecdote in my life. <laughs> so it was a collection of music that you and Mr. Shire had written. Uh, for various, yeah, yeah, we we came back to New York. Hal Prince suggested to another producer that we work on a on a show that was about the same material that Reds was uh, making connections with some of his composer friends, Billy Goldenberg in particular, who uh, uh, had who were in California and getting all sorts of work. Because Universal had a very started working doing features, and uh, yeah. um, and pretty soon he was moving out there. And it was about that time that I. Decided that I really wanted to be a writer, a, a director, mm-hmm. writer. and yeah. so I just started my little training program. <laughs> I was in the second show that David and I wrote at Yale. Um, was that Cyrano or it was Grand Tour? Oh, Grand Tour, Grand Tour, which was Gretchen Cryer was the lead. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Nancy Ford was in it, also Austin Amazing. Pendleton and um, Bill Hinnon and 
so uh, anyway, uh, uh, she, uh, we had a, it was about a school teacher, and 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 so there was a classroom right at the beginning. So we needed a bunch of kids, and and she was one of the, uh, uh, one of the school kids, the tall girl she was, and um, um, you know, and, and she was. We were, I guess, very nice to her. I, I, who knew? But you know, um, but it was a big deal for her. To, something. Um, by the way, Peter Hunt. Did the lights and John Batten was the set stage manager. Uh, John Conklin did the set. Um, wow! So um, uh, time flips some pages, and we're now. Uh, she has graduated from from Yale, is looking for to become a director, and this guy had would had this idea. Of, in London, apparently, there are theater clubs. There are places that that are. Um, uh, well, they're. Yeah, anti-person who was crazy enough to take it on, and um, you know, with its sixty thousand dollar debt and everything else, I mean, it was uh, it was pretty hopeless. Um, but we had a theater on Seventy Third Street, the Bohemian mm-hmm. Hall. And um, anyway, she, I, I sort of came in to help them do the benefit, their first benefit, which sort of saved them. And so, uh, you know, I had reconnected with her and. and uh, and it did have a, a large cabaret space, a, a sort of a restaurant space. There was a whole bunch of shows that hadn't happened, or right. that hadn't been produced, or that had, were produced but uh, weren't successful. And uh, so it it seemed like it had uh, failure written all over it. And uh, but I thought, well, I wanted to. I became a director in order to do my own thing, so let's do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, I got to uh, say yes. The one thing I knew that we were, was we were just going to do the songs. We were not going to have sketches or anything. In those days, reviews always had sketches or a compare of some sort, like the uh, um, the compare in uh, side by side by song. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, um, somebody who sort of tells little anecdotes and sets right. up the song. A little walk a walk. We were. We were, um, and I called up. Uh, uh, I called up Lonnie Ackerman, who had been in "How Do You Do, I Love You," um, and she said yes. There had been a girl who had done a very funny nightclub act, who was sort of a soprano. I called her up, and that was Marjorie, and she said yes. And I called up another guy, uh, Michael Tucci, who was in Greece, and he said yes. Um, so suddenly we had a cast, and I couldn't. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was astonished that people would say yes. <laughs> uh, I remember, I, I think I told you they were, they were getting twenty five dollars, not twenty five dollars a week, twenty five dollars yeah. for the eight week right. commitment, um, you know, four weeks of rehearsal and four weeks. Amazing. So we we found a pianist and and uh, we went into rehearsal and we started teaching the songs and and. Uh, I kept putting off getting it on its feet because I really had no idea how to direct a musical. Um, and so um, I, I took this, that moody opening is from uh, The Sap of Life, starting here, starting now. It goes in starting here, starting now, which is that song. And then we had bunches of songs from, uh, from, from different shows, comedy songs, ballads and everything. And, uh, but we did just the opening 
with everybody singing I Am In Love, you know, that thing, yeah. and then starting here, starting now, which seemed to be a good way to start. And they sang it. And I didn't know what to do, so I said, do it again. Um, and they sang it again, and I said, well, do it again. <laughs> and I, I must have happened about six or seven times. And finally, just out of desperation to, to maybe help me, uh, jo- um, Michael went over to to one of the girls in the middle, and I thought, why didn't he go to the other one? I thought, oh, I've got a plot. I've uh. got a triangle. So then I put together the first seven songs as a kind of a story uh-huh. um, of this boy in love with two girls, or trying going after two different two girls, a kind of a sleaze bag. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're open to to reordering. Well, I had no order at that time. There was just no, it was just nothing. It was just totally. a bunch of just songs, and then I, I put together a, a certain number of songs that that became a little bit of a plot. And oh dear, what do you know? It went. That was the first half of our act, and then we had three solo numbers, and then some group numbers, and 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 suddenly the whole first act was there, and they followed that through on the second act. And in doing so, I invented the the bookless musical, the bookless musical review, right. the review that doesn't have any, that is connected by by internal logic, not by uh, by any kind of interviewer or uh, or by sketches. Right. There were no, no words in the show right. at all, um, and that's how you invent. <laughs> That's how you would change the world. There it Thank is, God folks. Michael crossed to that girl. I know. <laughs> it's totally, it was totally true. And, and uh, from, from there on, you know. Um, and then the show opened, and people wanted to move it. It took a great deal of effort to, to, uh, to move it to theater restaurant on 46th Street called Barbara Ann's huh. that uh, uh, had a little stage, and, was, uh, and it, was, it was very nice. We... we had a terrible time making a deal. We had to raise all of twenty five thousand dollars to put it up, and it, you know it was like <laughs> it was like pulling teeth to get it. Um, we actually, the major investor was this crook who was a friend of somebody's. Some some you know show business has the dark side, and why mm-hmm. somebody knew somebody, and uh, and they were going to commit to. I think twenty thousand dollars or something like that, and uh, we kept being told, you know, be on the corner of the forty second eighth at six o'clock, and, and and someone will come and give you, and they didn't come, and then different things will happen, and finally Mary Jo Slater, it was the uh, um, one of the producers, uh, got given this bag full of cash. <laughs> A car came up. Climbed into it, was given a bag full of cash, oh my and goodness. Then dropped off. And uh, I've never heard anything like this I before. Mean, I never heard anything about it. But years later, <laughs> New York Magazine did a did a um, uh, uh, an article about this guy. This sort of theatrical kind of. Well, he wasn't even a theatrical. He was like a, a second level hood who was murdered. And that was the guy who gave us the bag what? of money. What? Oh my gosh! And and there's in the whole of the story, it goes on and on. And then there's this paragraph about how he dabbled in show business. <laughs> well, I guess wow. we're, we're thankful because uh, yeah, it kept you your show, show got on. You know, 
Yeah. And, were, and was recorded, and you know they they toured the country. They you know it was it, it was recorded. It got nominated for a Grammy. I mean, it was it was um, yeah. It just kept expanding and expanding and expanding. Um, when we moved, we also, I mean, the show was made up of, of just songs that had existed, and uh, and it needed some sort of edgier songs, and so we wrote um, Flare, I Don't Remember Christmas. Um, I love that one. Uh, I Don't Believe It, that, which was actually a, a melody from, from Love Match, but and I, what a new, new lyric and a new concept. And... Um, I think probably a couple of other things too. Mm-hmm. What we, the, the 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 darker sort of edgier songs we yeah. wrote for that, yeah, movie. specifically yeah. for the, yeah. the and the still movie. around today. It's you know oh, those yeah. songs appear in showcases and cabarets. They and do. They're, they're they still do. moving. They're such good songs. Still you know, funny. Well, still moving. Their songs and you see what story I, songs. What I realized was um, that people didn't write like us, and uh, the reason why our songs were not treated well in the shows that we had done was that the directors didn't know what to do with them. They knew how to stage musicals. They knew how to stage a musical number. They didn't know how to make a scene. And so they would... And our songs are kind of deceptive. You know, they might have a kind of a a recognizable kind of showbiz bounce to it that, it, you know, sort of telegraphs what the show is, what yeah. the song is. But in fact, the content of the song is quite different using that sort of sunny bounce as a kind of a uh, you know as a as a as a character enriching element um i'm i'm, I'm it's bouncy but i'm actually saying something serious right yeah. so um and people tended to miss that and um do uh so when i was putting the show together i made a lot of the mistakes that they made mm-hmm. um and then i realized Oh no, that's not what the song is about. The song is really about this, and um, in song after song, I, I realized the depth of characterization, which I had taken for granted, was uh, was quite um, uh, profound in these songs. They really, really, really—they not only had to be acted, but they had to be understood. Uh, you know, right. in a character sense, they had to be understood. It was—it was not just. Uh, they, they didn't have to be just performed, but there was something, you know, I, that's our our style. And uh, I didn't think there was anything unusual about that until I, you know, realized that a lot of people don't write that way. Exactly. With subtext and everything. I'm going to move us up to Song and Dance. Uh, uh, how, you directed that. I did. And yeah. how did you become involved? With that project, this is a musical that Angela Weber uh, wrote the music to. Right, right. Uh, well, um, uh, Tyler Gatchel of Gatchel and Newfield, who were the kind of the big deal mm-hmm. uh, general managers of the time, and they did all of Andrew's shows. Uh, Tyler was one of the great men of, of the theater, and and uh, and uh, the two of them, when we were hopeless, trying to move, starting here, starting now. These two guys, who were the biggest deal in New York, took on this little show, and <laughs> we were our general managers. I mean, they were they were so helpful, and the theater is made up of those people, yeah. and, and and they, uh, you know, they they loved the score. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't do that. You know, they just couldn't do enough for us. Uh, so after um, after Baby opened, 
Andrew was looking for lyricists, as he, as he always was. <laughs> one time, uh, I'll tell you this, uh, afterwards, uh, when we were working, I was working with Don Black on yes. the lyrics of, of the show, um, and we were going to visit Andrew at Sidmonton, which is out in the country. And you drove, drive, after you get off the main roads, you go through these little country roads. And the, the country roads are very narrow, and they have these huge hedges on, on each side, so that you, you're kind of driving to this, like, <laughs> tunnel and uh you know we're in the middle of nowhere but the road we were on was just filled with cars and i said to don black where who who are all these people you know right and and he said lyricists (laughs) 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 uh, but it was it was it was it was like that um um so Andrew at that time was interested in doing the aspects of love. Right. And uh, so he flew me over to uh, talk about, about, about that. And, um, um, (laughs) and he played me, um, he played me the songs that he said would be the score for aspects of love. And what what he played me was the score to Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) Wow. They all, Went off into Phantom of the Opera, <laughs> right? Because Phantom of the Opera came up first, and and uh, you know, and, fascinating. Um, and aspects of love, aspects of love had a real problem. It's really an interesting kind of cult novel. It has an absolutely breathtaking first chapter, and then it's like the writer didn't know what to do with it after <laughs> that. And so, in the first chapter you want to put on the musical stage instantly, and. Um, and after that, but in the course of it, he had also he and Cameron had also done uh, song and dance, and uh, I, I, in in London, and they were looking for uh, somebody who could perhaps come up with something. It was two separate things: a song cycle in the right. first half and a ballet in the second. And right. Was there any way that they could be combined? And uh, so well, we need someone who's not, not only a director but also a writer, like well, like. Like you, Richard. <laughs> How convenient. <laughs> and so uh, yeah. I didn't yes. do aspects of love, but I, I went home and, and, and wrote an outline of how the how the two stories could work together. And they and uh, Andrew Cameron thought that was very clever. And mm. So suddenly we were off on on, on that. Um, they they did. It involved you know rewriting a good deal of the. F- First of the song cycle, right? And uh, and Cameron said, "Well, Don Black is totally signed off on this. You can just you know do whatever you like." And I said, "Fine, I'm I'm writing and I'm about to really go to work on it." And so Cameron calls and says, "Well, actually, Don would really like to be involved." Turned out that Don contractually had to be involved. Oh, but. <laughs> And that he hadn't, in fact, signed off on it in that sense. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, so Don came over with what would have been, it could have been unbelievably uh, uncomfortable time because yeah. I'm sitting here rewriting his right. songs. And uh, But he's a good fellow. He's a, he has a great sense of humor, and he went along with it, and, and we, had a, we had a really good time. And we, so we holed up in the Mayflower Hotel and rewrote the show. Wow, interesting. So now, a question for you as a director. 
the second act of Song and Dance is completely choreographed. It's an all danced piece. Yeah. And then we're going to just jump forward for a quick second to Fosse, which you directed, which is also an entirely right. choreographed yeah. piece. So you are not a choreographer. I am certainly not. No. Um, how does that relationship work? How- well, in, in Song and Dance, uh, the first act is a song cycle. It's a one-woman show. You know, and I had the idea of Bernadette, an idea which, by the way, nobody liked. Really? Well, she wasn't Bernadette at that time. Right. She yeah. had done Mac and Mabel, which was a, you know, and she'd done some movies and everything, oh. but she wasn't a box office right. name. Who um, would they have wanted? Well, I don't know that they wanted anybody else, but they weren't impressed with that. Okay. I, I, but I could, I talked them into it. and uh, Wow. Um, uh, you know, and it, she won her first Tony for it. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And the second act was a, a ballet to a, a a piece of music, just variations. He wrote a, his Andrew's brother is a cellist, world class mm-hmm. cellist, mm-hmm. and so he um, uh, he wrote a cello concerto for him, and uh, and just decided that that would be the second act. And it starred a guy named Wayne Sleep, who was a big, a small man, but a big sort of dancing star in in, uh, in London. So the first act was a one-woman show start with a star. The second act was a ballet with a star. Yeah. And I found a way to make one of the stories, uh, one of the one of the men that uh, uh, our uh, heroine gets involved with. The second act is the, is 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 his story, and they finally, you know, they finally get together. Huh. Um, um, and someone had the quite brilliant idea of since we needed a world-class choreographer of asking Peter Martins who had just taken over the New York City Ballet um, to do it and he had never done a musical Um, but I wrote out the entire plot of the dance so to that extent I wrote the ballet and then he he had the music, and then there was the story, and and and, and so, so he did. That. You wrote the structure of what should happen, getting you from point A to point B, yeah. and then yeah. it's his job to. He just he took the story and the music, and then and then staged it. I mean, yeah. all the dancing was his. Do you get so specific as in measures one through fifty four? Are sometimes, seeing the girl sometimes. Sometimes there would be, um, you know, if, if the music had a real dynamic to it uh i would suggest that they that they build and this happens on this moment um but a lot of it was was um was his and uh, um and it, it you know he's a brilliant guy and, and uh, it worked out it worked out really well join us in two weeks for part three of our interview with richard maltby jr wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. 
there's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 